Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I have a wonderful guest today. Um, we're going to be going over his life and some of the amazing things he's done in his life. I'm so honored to have Mr. Sean McBride. And he has joined us on his birthday, which I think is extra special because he didn't need to do that. So uh, welcome, Sean. Hey, thanks a lot, Fig. Great to be here and always good to see you. Um, so I'm going to start off by saying, uh, you know, I'm going to let you go over your career little by little. And uh, the first question I usually have for everybody is just, can you tell me where you grew up and tell me about your life growing up? Yeah. So I always kind of like to brag about this. You know, I'm, I'm from Butte, Montana, and it's just a small, hardworking mining town, copper mining town in the southwestern part of the state. And, and I'm very proud. Of, of my upbringing there. And it's just a, uh, it's a, it's a tough town. You know, we're, we, we work hard, party hard, fight hard, uh, play hard on the, on the football field or basketball court or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I really attribute, you know, my blue collar work ethic to just growing up around a bunch of guys that are, are hardworking guys. And when you were growing up, um, tell me, tell me how it was. I mean, how many people in your family, tell me how, tell me what your child was, was like. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, 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 I tell you right now, Fig, you, the best way you can get me to feel uncomfortable is to do two things, to film me and to talk about myself. So well done there. You got me on both of my, my uh, weaknesses, I guess. I, I hate talking about this, but, I, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I I'm kind of joke about saying I'm from a traditional broken home. You know, my mom and dad were divorced when I was probably five or six years old. Uh, I have an older brother. Um, with my mom, uh, you know, same, same mom and dad. And then I have a, a younger brother who is from, uh, my dad's second wife. And so, uh, three boys total in the family. Uh, I stayed, you know, my mom and dad were divorced and I kind of unusual, but I, I lived with my dad. Uh, my, uh, mom left town and, uh, we were kind of, uh, didn't really talk for about 20 years. I, I regret that. That was a, a bad judgment call on my part, but we've since, uh, we're, you know, she's one of my best friends, so all good there, but growing up in Butte was cool, you know, being a, uh, son of a single hardworking dad, you know, we had a lot of, uh, unsupervised time. So I think it's lucky probably that I'm, that I'm here. Uh, we lived on the, in the Rocky mountains, uh, Butte's called the mile high city. Cause we're over 5,000 feet above sea level right out. My front door was the continental divide. So we could just grab our, our BB guns and our dog and go hiking. Uh, you know, within 15 minutes, you're up on the ridge overlooking the city. And uh, it, it was, it was good, a good place to grow up. And when you were growing up, who were your role models? <laughs> you know, I'm still waiting uh, for the Packers, for the Green Bay Packers to call me. I'm never going to forget that dream. But uh, I was a Green Bay Packer fan. And, uh, you know, back then, that was before the, the Seahawks were around. So everybody was either a Viking fan, a Bronco fan, or a Packer fan up in Montana. And my dad was a Packer fan, so I was a Packer fan. And Bart Starr was uh, one of my heroes. I had a, a poster. I still have the poster uh, hanging up in my bedroom. And uh, when, when I was a young guy, I think junior high school, I was, I was a quarterback, and uh, or I guess really grade school. I wrote him a letter asking him for advice. And I still have a, a handwritten letter from Bart Starr uh, talking about, you know, giving me advice, you know, real general advice, stay out of trouble, listen to your coaches, that kind of stuff. But he was a, a – a significant role model for me. Again, hardworking, very uh, uh, moral guy. So I had a lot of respect for him. And and what were some of the challenges? You said you, you grew up in a broken home. What were some of those challenges that you remember? Um, some of the most you know some of the most difficult times when you were growing up. What was that like for you? You know, and you know, I, I certainly don't want any pity or anything because things turned out fine. You know, and. and some of the challenges were actually fun. Again, I said we had a lot of unsupervised time. So uh, we were expected to do, to do stuff on our own. You know, my dad was gone when, when I, we woke up in the morning. He was already at work. And, you know, we would get up and make our own breakfast, make our own beds and get our own way to school. And, uh, you know, get off school. We would come home to an empty house and do our homework. And my brother and I, a lot of times we would prepare dinner and stuff like that. So uh, I think that helped me in a way. But you know, I miss not having a mom, you know, I'd go over to my buddy's houses and, and I used to just enjoy having a, a mom there to greet us and to make us a snack or whatever, or, or do that. So I think that was probably the, 
probably the worst part of it was just didn't have a mom. So when did you kind of come to that consciousness? When you, when you were young, you used to think about that? Or as you got older, you realized that you missed that part of, that part of your life? I think I noticed it, you know, when I was a kid, when I would go over, because I enjoyed it so much, you know, I can still remember some of my friends and their mothers, but it didn't really hit me. You know, I, it, I didn't go back home and think, ma'am, I, I really, this is a hole in my life or anything. It was just that I enjoyed it at the time. And then when I got older and I, I just learned more about my mom and dad's relationship and, and things and realized that I was wrong for not reaching out to my mom. And I, and I did that, you know, we, kind of made up for the last 20 years, but I guess it was when I was a little bit older when I realized that uh, kind of screwed that one up. And when you were in high school, can you tell me a little bit about your high school, uh, your high school career? Did you play sports? What did, what did you like? Did you like school? What, um, did you do well in school? What were your plans when you were in high school? Yeah, so we have two high schools in town. It's only a town of like 30,000 people, but we had two high schools, still do. One was a, a public school, one was a, a Catholic school. I went to the Catholic school and I always appreciated that. My dad worked hard to pay tuition. You know, I could have gone two blocks down the road to a free school, but the Catholic school was a lot smaller. Um, and living in a small town, you know, I was going to school with guys that I went to kindergarten with. You know, I knew my, my whole life. And so I, I enjoyed that. I, uh, I quit playing football. I think it was in eighth grade uh, and started running cross country because I could not play sports. And I played basketball early on and then I ended up quitting that and just playing like kind of like club sports and that sort of thing. So I ran uh, uh, basketball, played baseball when I was a little bit younger. But by the time I was in high school, the only thing I was doing really was running as far as organized sports go. I was really uh, small. You know, I think I graduated. I ended up probably six foot, about 148 pounds, man. I was a beanpole. So I didn't start beefing up again or at all until after I got out of high school. So. I uh, always regretted that because I love football, but I just, I was just a little guy. So what was your, did you do well in school and what was your relationship like with your father growing up? Yeah. Okay. So two questions. Yeah, I did well in school and I, I, I studied hard, but I was one of those guys that didn't, didn't really struggle in high school, had good grades. I got a, offered a academic scholarship out of high school. I turned it down foolishly to go in the Marine Corps, but, um, I did hit the books hard. I was under a lot of pressure from my dad to perform. So that was part of my motivation. But um, yeah, I just was fortunate that I was one of those guys that did okay in school. But my dad, you know, he's, he's significant role model, uh, obviously, you know, raising two sons and, and then three sons. He was remarried actually twice, W1, W2, and W3, my brother and I joke around uh, with that. But uh, he was really hard. He, you know, he said, high standards he uh very very stern very stern disciplinarian uh you know we weren't unsupervised but we when we got in trouble we got in trouble and uh but he you know we he expected us to work around the house we all had to pitch in we all had to do our part and so you know he you know he let he i guess kind of forced us to grow up a little fast and uh and that's okay so what do you, you said you did well in school. Like, where do you think you got that drive from to do well? Were you under pressure from your parents or you this pressure that you put on yourself or? Uh... You know, I remember there was like four groups in high school and thinking back, I'm sure they would never do that this way, but, and they were, it was based on academic standing, you know? And so you had the, the lower group and then the next and then the next. And I was in the, in the fourth, the highest group. And I think we were, we were challenged more and we had, I, I think probably better uh, instruction. And then you had the kind of the troublemakers that were in the lower group and the, you know, they just kind of stumbled by. So I was fortunate that I was putting that higher group. So I was, I was sitting side by side with just real smart, real driven people. But I, I, I have to attribute it to my dad, I guess. I, I, I mean, I was under a lot of pressure. I was nervous come report card time. Cause I had to take that report card down and show it to him and have him sign it. And then, you know, if I, it, he used to get all over me if I got a B, you know, so if it wasn't straight A's, I'd hear about it. So I, I was just, I think he put a lot of pressure on me, which in turn caused me to, to try harder. And, you know, and I, of course you, you always want to succeed. So, um, yeah, I think in the long run, it probably just kind of, um, I absorbed that drive. So it was a good thing for you that he, that you were pushed that much. I think so. Yeah. 
And then after high school, what was your what was your plan? Did you go directly to college, or did you what What did you do? You know, and my wife Michelle, she she gets on me because she hates when I when I talk about my plans because, uh, you know, she always wants me to have this inspirational story of how I I set a goal for myself and did everything to meet that goal. I had no plan, you know, and and um, my my dad was a marine. Uh, but he was in and out of the Corps before I was born. I think he was in the reserves when I was just a, an infant, so I don't remember it at all. But he was one of those guys that you see wearing the Marine Corps T-shirt or hat or belt buckle. He always had some sort of Marine Corps propaganda on his body, and he kept a, a, a flat top, high and tight haircut. He looked like a, a sergeant major, and um, he loved the Marine Corps. And so and I, I say this, it sounds like I'm joking, but I'm not. I mean, I was brainwashed as a, my entire life that I was going to go in the Marine Corps. And I enlisted when I was 17 years old. I was still a senior in high school. It was, it was October. And as soon as I was old enough to enlist, I went down to the recruiter and I enlisted. You know, my dad was right there with me to sign up. And uh, I put no thought into it. It was just, that's just what I was going to do. And I actually w- was offered a, an academic scholarship to the college in my hometown, and I turned it down because I was just going to the Marines, and that's all I cared about. And uh, and so come around July, you know, it's time for me to go down and, and, and get ready to ship to boot camp. And then at the last minute, it was just kind of a um, – I, I think I rebelled a little bit, and I said, hey, I want to go in the Marine Corps Reserve now. I don't want to go active duty because I have put no thought into this. And my dad was upset. The recruiter was mad because he had to redo a bunch of paperwork and everything. But uh, I stood my ground. And so I went into the Marine Corps Reserve and I went down to San Diego for boot camp and uh, then off on to do my training. Then I came back home to do my res- my reserve unit was in Billings, Montana, which is a couple hundred miles away. So can you kind of um, explain that transition that you made when you were in boot camp? What was that experience like for you? Um, was it a positive experience and were you, at any one point did you go, Oh, did I make the right decision? Should I went to college or um, can you go over that a little bit? Yeah. So I was 17 years old and I had never been away from home except to go to football camp, you know, in Bozeman, Montana, which is 80 miles away. So very, very naive, very young, very immature. And I mean, the first time I remember getting on an escalator was in the Salt Lake City airport going to San Diego, you know, to boot camp. And so uh, I got there, and it was a very rude awakening. I was one scared young man. And uh, I still remember, you know, at the, at the beginning of boot camp, there's this moment where the drone instructors kind of explode, and they all circle around you, and they just go nuts. And you've seen it in the movies, and you've probably seen it on YouTube. But I had three drone instructors around me just screaming at me within inches of my face, spitting on me and everything. And at that moment, I was like, I've made a horrible decision. You know, what am I doing here? And uh, boot camp was hard for me. I, I wasn't, I was a good recruit. I was, you know, the fourth recruit in the fourth squad. I was just kind of very uh, middle of the pack guy. I was good, good academically, good with physical fitness, but I was never a, a squad leader or anything like that. Just a good middle of the pack guy and absolutely proud. You know, when I crossed that parade deck, when I graduated, I, the Marines hymn played and I got chills. You know, I still remember the hair on my arm stood up. And to this day, when I hear the Marines hymn, that happens to me. And I, it, it, it kind of left an imprint on me, but I was not happy. I came out of boot camp thinking, man, I, I, I am not, this is not for me. So. <laughs> can, can you go, yeah, can, can you tell me about that? What do you mean by that? That wasn't for you and what kind of second thoughts you were having? Yeah. You know, and again, part of it, I think, is suddenly now I'm doing it and I, you know, it's a life changing decision that I put no thought into it. And I completely did it for my dad because my dad told me to do it. And I, I didn't enjoy it. I mean, boot camp was hard. I was very immature and it was just it was tough. And I, I did fine, but it was just hard. And I'm just like, man, I don't think I want to be a Marine. And I, I think I just made a terrible decision. And so then what happened is I came home on leave. You know, of course, you're kind of a celebrity in a small town, you know, come home and you're a Marine. So everybody's loving it. So I was all, I was eating that up. But then I went to 29 Palms, California for about a year and a half for training. And uh, that went, that ended up changing me. I, I just was serving with some really good guys and really good young Marines from all over the world or all over the country. And what was really cool was, you know, all different races and religions and everything. You know, I grew up in a, you know, white town. So I learned an awful lot about 
different people, different cultures. It was just really eye-opening for me. And that's when I started to enjoy it and started to think, this is, this is pretty cool. This is not a bad way to make a living. So it's when you met people from different parts of the country and different cultures that you started to really, hey, you know, this is a lot better than I thought it was going to be. And just kind of the relationships that you were building. What kind of relationships were you building with people in there? Yeah, well, you know, it's, first of all, I'm a, I, th I always think that like shared misery builds a strong team and build strong friendships. And so you start doing training with guys side by side and you're all kind of miserable and you're all working hard and you're all helping each other. And you, you know, you don't really care who's black or white or uh, Jewish or Catholic or whatever. You're just a bunch of guys trying to get it done. And um, so you just start building these strong friendships. And uh, I, you know, I've got friends today. I can pick up the phone and call that I met in 1983 in 29 Palms, California. And I think, you know, they would be there for me. And um, I think uh, you see that you're like, you're an awful lot like guys from Chicago and Los Angeles and, and Boise and New York or whatever, you know, you're all just a bunch of young guys out getting some and yeah, just, it's a really a, a sense of camaraderie, I guess. Yeah. Just trying, everybody's trying to, build a life for themselves yeah and you're, you're all moving in the same direction and so when you were when you completed that did, did you go from the reserves to act to full at no, some so, point yeah and i how, did and, and, what was so the transition I, with that well I, I went back to back home after that year and a half or whatever it was a training and then I, I i'm just like okay here i am and I, I was trained as a as a radio repairman and a radio operator and my reserve unit was in Billings, Montana. It was a it was a reconnaissance unit. And so what we did was we would hike long distances to go kind of spy on the enemy, you know, or jump out of airplanes or 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 swim in or something and set up a location and report back on enemy movement and that sort of thing. There there wasn't any job for a radio repairman, you know. It was, these are all like manly men, you know, doing doing tough, dangerous things. And so when I first got there, you know, I was a basically a, a really highly trained radio operator. So I did what everybody else did, but I also carried a radio and all the batteries and stuff. And I wasn't too happy about it at first. And uh, I just had this attitude problem, just kind of a chip on my shoulder. And um, I think this is one of the first times, first of many times in my life when I just, I started looking around at these guys that I was serving with and they're just good guys, man. They're farmers and miners and just, you know, college students, just good guys from mostly Montana all over the state. And then you realize I'm, I'm kind of in the presence of greatness here. These are just like some of the best young men in America. And I just did an attitude shift. And I was like, you know, I, I can be happy or I can be sad. But either way, I'm hiking up that hill. So I might as well hike up that hill happy. And so that changed. And I think there was, there was a point there or that's when I realized, you know, I do like being a Marine. And I like this hard training. I like this hard life. And so that changed me there. And so I'm going to school. I, I started going to college at Montana Tech. And. I picked Montana Tech because I could see it from my dad's back porch. You know, I, I put no thought into it. I don't even remember applying. I remember going and signing up for college. And I was the first one in my family to go to college. There was no pressure at all. I mean, no, there's not, not even any, uh, any encouragement to go to college. I don't even know why I did it. I think I did it because some of my other friends were going to college. And so I started as an engineer. It's a, it's a very, very good engineering school. It's always in the U.S. News and World Report. Uh, every year is one of the top engineering schools in the country. And about a year or so in, you know, I wasn't doing very well. I was working a bunch of part-time jobs. Physics was killing me. Calculus was killing me. And it suddenly dawned on me, I don't even know what an engineer does. I mean, if you would have asked me at that time, hey, what do you want to do when you graduate? What are you going to do? I'm like, I, I honest to God have no idea what an engineer does. And so I took a semester off. And I, I went to Norway with my reserve unit for an exercise up there. And I was thinking about just going down to the recruiter and saying, hey, just let's just put me back on active duty. But um, I talked, I ran into a professor one day in the gym and he talked to me about a different program, this occupational safety and health, kind of an applied health application where it was all about uh, fitness and cardiovascular uh, rehabilitation kind of stuff. And that, that changed me. I got into it and then I enjoyed school. You know, I stretched a four-year degree into six years, <laughs> but I, or maybe five or six, I forget, but I got through it. So that was a long answer to a short question, man. Sorry about that. No, no. <clears throat> so like I said, this is about your journey. So you, you take as much time as you need. And um, so when you finished, when you finished um, 
so you went over to did you go over to you went over to active duty huh and then and then what was your kind of progression from there and 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 if you can give me some of your experiences that you had overseas and and i'm going to get into this again uh get into this as as well as um when you started we started getting involved in some conflicts overseas just what those experiences were like in in making you the person you are today yeah so first of all so i'm in college and i'm enjoying it and i'm working a bunch of jobs uh everything from bartending to an EMT to working at North American van lines, consolidated freightways, all this stuff. And uh, again, no clue what I'm going to do when I get out of college, not even thinking about it. And then one day I'm, I'm walking across the student union building and I see a Marine officer in uniform. And so I'm like, what's, what's this guy doing here? So I walked up and introduced myself as I'm Corporal McBride. And he was a recruiter. He was looking at recruiting officers and he asked me if I was interested. And I'm like, no, sir. Yeah, I, I, I don't want anything to do with being an officer. Thanks very much. And away I went. And then a year goes by and there he is again. And so I tried to avoid him, but he sees me and he calls me over. And I'm a sergeant by then. And he asks me, what are you going to do when you get out of college? And I was just like, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. And he's like, well, here, let me help you think about it. And uh, he pitched me on becoming an officer or trying to. And uh, I'm like, you know, I, I got nothing else going on. I don't have any idea. So let me give it a try. And um, I wish I had one of those inspirational post 9-11 stories why I joined the Marine Corps to defend my country or whatever. But it was just like, all right, what the hell? And uh, so I go off to officer candidate school, do fine, end up graduating and getting commissioned as a second lieutenant. And off, off, I'm in. You know, I'm a, I'm a Marine officer at that point and off to my training, you know, a couple of years worth of training in Quantico and, and uh, Washington, D.C. and some other places and and that's how it all started so it's not it's not a real inspirational beginning to my career as a commissioned officer and what are some of the places you were stationed overseas and yeah so i one thing i tried real hard to do is to keep moving around a lot you know i didn't want to um some guys we call it homesteading will just stay on the west coast their whole career or try to i didn't want to do that you know i wanted to just get out all over the place so spent um did a bunch of training and stuff in Northern Virginia. Then my first duty station was uh, Camp Pendleton, California, just down there south of uh, LA, between LA and San Diego, which was great, a great place for a young single guy to be, as you can imagine. And just had a great time there, good training. I uh, was able to go to Korea for a, a, over the course of a winter, operating right up on the de demilitarized zone. So I learned an awful lot about my trade there. And then I was able to go to, my first really hard, cool deployment was Somalia. And that was uh, pre-Black uh, Hawk Down. It was right when we first went into Somalia uh, to try to um, help with the humanitarian disaster that was going on there. So I spent several months over there. And that was uh, kind of eye-opening for me, you know, to see. I, I had never been to such a terrible place as Mogadishu before. And you see how those people are living. And it was pretty cool what we were able to do over there at the beginning when, when the mission was humanitarian relief. Uh, and, and we did a great job of, of feeding the folks and, and uh, separating the warlords. And so it was good. And then it kind of went south there. And that's what the movie is all about. But, uh, and then the best part of that last, my first assignment was just before I left, uh, I met Michelle. And um, had, um, probably six months after I met her, against all my, all my policies about dating a girl for a minimum of two years before you ever consider marrying her, you know, we got married and, and, uh, so we've been married now for 20 coming up on 27 years. So, uh, I attribute her to much of my success, but to ask your question, where we go. And then we were stationed in, uh, back up in, uh, Maryland down in North Carolina, uh, back up in DC, then out to Hawaii, Camp Pendleton. And that's when I went to Iraq a couple of times and North Carolina, Pennsylvania, uh, back to Washington, D.C., Okinawa, Japan, Stuttgart, Germany. And then I was very fortunate to finish up where I met you there at Los, in Los Angeles at the NROTC. So we did a lot of traveling around. So tell me about your experiences again. You said in, in Somalia. How, how did that must have been eye opening? It must have been an eye opening experience for you. you know, and and how, how, do you, how did you develop as a leader? Um, of men and women when, when you're overseas, how did you develop as a leader when you're in those uh, areas of the world that are going through serious conflict? Yeah, I remember um, as an EMT, 
when when I was going to college, you know, you would occasionally have to deal with a deceased person or whatever. And so, yeah, it, 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 there's a, a smell associated with it. And I remember getting off that plane in Mogadishu, and that's the first smell that hit me, the smell of death. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know, what is this place like? But um, that's when, you, you know, I really appreciated how good we have it in America. But what you find in situations like that is, I mean, we went there and we had nothing. I mean, we, we the first night, I mean, we just slept on the ground at the airport. I mean, we didn't ha have anything, you know, and then over the course of some time, you start getting in your, your infrastructure, get your tents in, you start getting in some, some uh, generators. So you have electricity and stuff, but we're much better th now than we were then. But which again, you find is it's, it's um, shared misery, right? You're it's, it's tough living, but as an officer, you're in charge and whether you want to be or not, whether you're ready to be or not, and uh, I, man, I, again, I was still really young and I was still pretty naive, but I knew my role. And so I had to set the example. I had to do the right thing. I had to do, ask my guys to not, not do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And then I, I learned, you know, I, I, I talked to guys that were junior to me, but had more experience than me. And, I'm, and to this day, I'm not at all too proud to ask for help or advice or something. And so I think that's when I started to unconsciously understand that it's all about relationships. You know, it's not like you're standing on top of a vehicle screaming at people to do something. It's all about getting people together, finding out what's the, what are some options to solve a complex problem, getting people's input, but ultimately then making a decision and you're, and you own that decision and then do it. And if it's not right, you adjust on the fly. But I think, you know, I think that's where it started for me, putting in dangerous positions where, you know, you have people's lives and, and millions of dollars worth of equipment and classified information and stuff uh, that you're responsible for. And it kind of hits you. And you, I think either you rise to the occasion or you, or you don't. And were you ever in a situation where you didn't believe in maybe what your leadership was doing and you're the leader, you're also a leader, and how do you handle those situations? Yeah, every day, man. I'll tell you, I'm my own worst enemy or own, own worst critic, I guess. So I second guess myself all the time. But what I, I think what I do, a couple of things is wherever I've been, I establish pretty close relationships. I you either have peers that you can kind of go talk to in a very informal way and just kind of bear your soul and say, I need some advice. Here's what I'm doing. It doesn't feel right, but what do you think? But also with my, my senior enlisted guys. And so as an officer, we're kind of, I guess, the white collar guys and the enlisted guys are more the blue collar guys. But you always have like a, a senior enlisted person who is your kind of your right hand man or woman. And um, I always would develop very tight relationships with them to get their input and to um, help have them give me a little bit of rudder steerage if I was going off the wrong course or uh, a lot of times he's, I don't know what to do. I mean, we have a problem here. I don't know how to handle it. And so you bring in your, your senior guys or whatever, and just say, what are some ideas? And, you know, you kind of get by in that way, but yeah, I, I second guess my, my decisions all the time. There's never been a job that I've taken where I walked in and said, I'm fully qualified for this. No problem at all. But you're but you're making very um, uh, you're in some very dangerous situations sometimes where you have to make some really you have to be that you have to be that later that makes uh, difficult decisions very quickly. Yeah. Um, and I, it seems to me that you've um, I mean, how did, how did you develop those skills and these what kind of skills and attributes do you think you need to be a good leader? Yeah, I th you know, and I can't say enough about Marine Corps training and uh, Marine Corps all kinds of Marine Corps training, but certainly Marine Corps leadership training. And, you know, we have a saying, if there, if two Marines walk into a room, one of them is in charge. Okay. And if you ever walk up to a group of Marines and say, Hey, who's in charge here? Somebody will raise their hand or all the other guys will point at somebody, you know, but, um, and so you're always expected to learn how to lead. You're always expected to be ready to lead. And so from day one of a boot camp, you know, you're put into positions of, of authority and they rotate you through. And so you're, you're challenged constantly. And then when you get to become an officer at officer candidate school, it's even more stressful and you're constantly placed in positions where you've got to make decisions and you've got to come up with a plan. And uh, so you do it over and over and over again. So you kind of get the 
the muscle memory of of being decisive. But there's always, you always get put into positions like I didn't I wasn't confronted with this problem before or something. So what do I do? But you still have those basic things where you you kind of um you know kind of like um, John Boyd's OODA loop. You know you observe, you orient, you make a decision, then you act, and then it's a feedback where okay I screwed that one up, so let's adjust a little bit to the right or the left or whatever. So I think um, having the ability to to have good situational awareness to understand what's going on around you. And then uh, if you have the luxury of time to talk to your senior leaders and get their input, because you certainly uh, uh, want different perspectives and then to be uh, humble enough to realize if you're wrong, that you have to adjust. And, uh, you know, so I think, I think that's kind of how it goes. And then the more you do it, the more it just becomes more second nature, I guess. And, and what are the attributes do you think uh, that makes a good leader? Well, I would tell you the number one in my mind is humility. And uh, there's a there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And I just don't think you want to step over that line. I think arrogant people turn people off. So I think uh, a leader has to understand that he or she is not the smartest, probably not the smartest person in the room and be able to trust other people and to uh, ask for their input. Not always take it. You know, you, you're at the end of the day, the leader is the one that makes the decision, but you, you need to be humble enough to, to uh, uh, accept that. And then also, obviously, decisiveness. You know, you've heard of analysis, uh, paralysis by analysis, you know, where you're, you're, you're afraid to make a decision. You always want more information, more information. And, and I would say you can get 80% of the information you need in like five minutes, and it might take you a year to get that other 20% up to 100% there. So you just got to make a decision to move on. And nobody likes to be around a leader that's indecisive because things just don't get done. And so you either, you know, the best thing you can do is make the right decision. And the second best thing you can do is make the wrong decision. And the worst thing you can do is make no decision. So uh, you, you've got to be decisive. I, I could go on. I mean, we have a whole list of traits and principles and stuff like that. But uh, those are two that pop right into my mind. And can you tell me how you dealt with loss? And I think um, yeah, I, I know you've spoken to me that about that in the past. Um, you've probably had friends that you've lost um, in, in the course of your career. Uh, can you talk about that and how you dealt with that and how as a leader you dealt with that? Yeah, so... Um... One thing that's in the in the Marine Corps and in the service, you know, if you lose somebody in an operation or something, I mean, you don't have time to stop then and mourn them. You know, you got to continue. You got to continue into the fight, doing whatever you're doing, and uh, you you very respectfully take the remains and push them back. You know, but once once you get some downtime, that's when it kind of hits you. And so the important thing is, I think, is to not not push your feelings down. You know, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to mourn and it's okay to get, it's important to get the guys together, the guys and, and the ladies together and talk about it and, uh, and don't try to ignore it. Don't try to pretend it, it whatever it was, ha didn't happen. And then, um, you kind of renew your efforts to be successful in their honor. Okay. And so that's what causes me to drive on and to, and to try to do things, uh, so that I don't embarrass myself in my, my friend's eyes. You know, I want to, I want to, everything I do, I want to do it in their honor. And so I think that helps a little bit, but you never stop missing them. You never stop, you know, thinking about them. And, uh, especially the young guys, you know, that just, you know, they could, they, they should be raising a family and, and making a difference in the world. And they just never got that opportunity. And then how do you address that with the men and women that you, that you were the leader for? Yeah straight up you know you, you can't you can't sugarcoat it um i i guess the latest one the last one that i had to deal with is we had a, just a great young midshipman at UC, usc that um that died uh september 4th 2019 i guess and uh it was pretty devastating you know across the campus and across of course across our unit and um i i think the the main thing is is to look everybody in the eye and let them know that 
these things happen. You know, death is part of life and it's not anybody's fault. And, you know, there's always a lot of guilt to go around. Could we have done something to prevent this or whatever? And you got to make it very clear to people that, no, I mean, there's nothing we could have done differently. And then um, again, you, you, you go on and you, and you honor them. You, 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 uh, and what we did, of course, we, we you know, we had a, a couple of memorial services and we're, we're able to involve the parents. And so that was pretty special, but um, uh, you, you, you renew your efforts to be successful for them because they would want you to be. And uh, it seemed, you know, it, and then also there's some people that need help. You know, there's some people that really struggle more than others and you got to keep an eye out for them and get them some professional counseling or something. And, and it's important to let people know that there's no shame in that. Absolutely no shame in getting some help. And uh, the Marine Corps has been very good about that over the last several years where early on in my career, you know, you would never ever consider that, but um, yeah, so. Direct it, talk, talk about it right up front and, and often. And and, and you, it, it said the Marine Corps has evolved over time. So has leadership gotten better? And, you know, they they since they've allowed their line women in combat positions um, now, how I mean, how is that transition for you? Yeah, you know, the Marine Corps changed a lot in the, in the 38 years that I've been in. And, we, you know, we've gone through some everything you know you started out with you you couldn't be in the uh, a homosexual and serve in the marine corps and then you could but you couldn't tell anybody and then they uh we, you know i guess it was about 2016 or something it was then policy that you could serve openly and uh i was very proud of the fact that nothing happened you know it's just like it was just another day you know no big deal and so changes like that have come the, the ability for females to serve in any job in the, in the Marine Corps or in the services was, to me, almost more significant because it's hard. It's, it's a physic being an infantry Marine or being an armor Marine or being an uh, artillery Marine or some of the things that just take physical strength and endurance, it's hard. And uh, boys and girls are different physically. And I worry, I worry about that. And I, you know, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I worry about breaking um, young females by trying to ha get them to do some things that maybe their bodies aren't designed for. But I'll tell you, some of the greatest Marines I've served with were, were female Marines, absolutely fearless, um, physically fit, morally sound, you know, all the stuff you expect out of a Marine. So I think that if a, if a female Marine has the, 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 um, propensity to serve in a, in a combat environment or in a, in a combat arms job and is physically able to do it. I mean, they work side by side with their male counterparts with no issues. I mean, it just, it's just, a, it's, it's a non-issue. It just, mm -hmm. just like, was there Sigourney Weaver and alien man, just out there getting some, it's not a big deal. And we're over it. We're, we're well, I think we're well over that as a culture, you know, there's always going to be guys that are, you know, whatever, women haters, homophobes, whatever, you know, you're always going to have those people because society has those people. But I think as a culture, we're pretty much over it and we're just driving on. Very, very proud of that. What, what was the most difficult time in your entire military career that maybe challenged you as a leader or made you think twice about being in the military? Yeah, yeah, I have to think about the second part of your um, your question there because I, I don't know that I ever once I decided to do it, I don't think I ever thought about getting out. But certainly, the most challenging thing I did as a leader was, uh, and I, this is a long story, so I got to make it short. I deployed to Iraq from Camp Pendleton, California. Okay, so I got on a plane in California, flew to Iraq. While I was there. I was put in command of a battalion that was already in Iraq, but they were stationed on the East Coast. And so I flew from California, took over this battalion while they're in combat. And then I flew home to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I never returned to California. So it was really weird. And it was very difficult on my family because they, they were on their own to move across country. But the hard part there was you've got a, a battalion of Marines and, you know, roughly six, 700 guys and about four or 500 were in Iraq spread out all over Al Anbar province in small teams. And the guy that I replaced was relieved of command for some misconduct. So he was fired 
while he's in theater and they grab me and say, okay, you're in charge now. And so I'm like, oh my God, you know, first of all, I'm not ready. Again, I, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Number two, I've got Marines spread all over here that have no idea what's going on. I've got family members back in Camp Lejeune whose who's sons and daughters are at risk. You know, they're in Iraq and all of a sudden their boss gets fired and sent home. So you know that they're wondering what the hell's going on. And so I had to very quickly come up with a command philosophy, very quickly get out there and meet everybody, let them know that, hey, I'm, I'm here. There's an adult in the room. And then I also had to get the word back to the families and say, we're fine. You know, we, we have leadership in place, business as usual, your, your, your sons and daughters and wives and husbands are as safe as they can be in Iraq. And uh, that was hard. That was a tough one. And it, we worked it out, though. And, and what kind of things did you do? So first thing I did was um, I had my, my sergeant major again. He was a, my, my, my senior enlisted guy. He and I got on a helicopter and flew all over Alambar province, everywhere we had Marines. And we went there and introduced myself to them. You know, I'm now their commanding officer. And we just sat down with them and we talked and we had a meal or something, shared a, an MRE, you know, meal ready to eat or something in there in their little crappy position where they were and uh, got to know them and got to find out what made them tick, got to know what was bothering them, things that were in concern, let them know who I was and what my, my intent was, what my plan was. And so we traveled all over Iraq and uh, it was probably some of the most fulfilling stuff I'd ever done in my life and scariest. And so I did that. And then the guys that were back on Camp Fallujah with us, it was easier because they were there with me. So I got around and I saw all of them and we talked a lot. But the, one of the most important things I did was I had a video teleconference. And now, it, you know, we do this via Zoom or, or whatever this platform is. It, it's not a problem. But back then, you know, 2016, and we're doing it from Iraq to Camp Lejeune, it was challenging technologically. But we packed in as many spouses as we could into our conference room back at Camp Lejeune. And I talked to them. And I... Uh, let them know what happened as best as I could, let them know that I was in charge, let them know what we were doing, told them everything I could tell them to, to make them feel uh, co confident in, in the leadership in Iraq. And then I had a secret weapon, man, and that was my wife, because she actually packed up the family, drove cross country, set up a house at Camp Lejeune, and was absolutely integral in getting out and about, meeting spouses, talking to them, and uh and michelle and i had the ability to talk fairly regularly so she could kind of give me a, a sense of what was going on back there at camp lejeune so i knew what was on people's minds and i could address it and kind of stay ahead of it so i think i think that's how we did it just getting out there and letting people see my face and and uh, let them know that i cared were you a colonel at the time no i was a brand new lieutenant colonel and then you eventually uh, you retired as a colonel, and yeah. uh, so that's just one one below a little a brigadier general, I believe, right? So yeah, that's right. Um, so how do you deal with how did you deal with resistance? Um, I'm sure that you had resistance from officers sometimes, or uh, some juniors, or some of um, the enlisted. What do you, what did you do to deal with the uh, resistance sometimes, and how did you overcome that? Yeah, you know, and I grew as a leader over time because. When I was younger, I kind of had a hair trigger, you know, I had a bad temper and, um, you know, you almost try to intimidate guys, you know, it just wasn't good. You know, it's just kind of the way I, I guess just kind of immature leadership style. But after a while, you, you, you start, you grow up and you realize, first of all, if no one's shooting at you, no one's shooting at you, you know, so it's not that, it's not life sensitive or anything. And so first I like to get, I get to know people. And if you have some people that are resisting change or whatever it is, I got no problem sitting down and talking to them and finding out why. And who knows, man, maybe they have something I don't know that I need to know. Maybe they've got a better idea, but, um, you know, you know, I don't want to say it's winning them over, but if you have a conversation with somebody and let them know you care. And, uh, oftentimes that's all it takes, but sometimes it's just not, sometimes you just got guys that are hard headed some, and, I hate to say that, but in, in, uh, there's been times when you just start documenting and they got to go. If, they, if they're not going to get on board the train, I mean, the train's pulling out of the station and, and you're going to be left behind. 
And so you, you in, the, in the Marine Corps, you've got to document misconduct and things like that very carefully in order to, to make that change. But, you know, I hate to do that. I hate to lead in a negative way. But sometimes you just have to do that. There comes a time when you just got to cut your losses because there's, you know, 500 other people that need your time. And you can't spend it all on this guy or gal. Was, was it difficult to have a family because you were still had a family? It just, and we haven't brought that up, but that's an, uh, certainly a critical portion of your life. Was it difficult? Did that cause strain on your relationship and your family? Just you're raising a family. And yeah. So tell me how that was for you. So I, when I was younger, I used to talk about a work-life balance and all that stuff. And then it just kind of occurred to me one time, uh, not that long ago, I was like, there's no, there is no work-life balance in the Marine Corps. I mean, that's a fallacy. We try, but in my opinion, you can, you can either be a great father or mother or a great Marine, and it's really hard to be both. And, it, you know, it's your, your own definition of great, I guess, because if Michelle was sitting here, she'd be like, oh, no, you're a great husband and all that stuff. And the kids would be like, oh, no, Dad, you're great. But my definition, I wasn't. And I tried always to be there for anything that I could be. You know, if I was in town and there was a dance recital, you know, I was there. But I missed a lot of stuff. I missed Christmases and Halloweens and Thanksgivings and birthdays and football games and uh things that I just can't get back because I made the decision that I'm going to go, I'm out in the field with the guys and I can't come back to go to your football game because my responsibility is those 250 Marines that are out in the field. Michelle gives me a hard time because when she had our son, I think it was our son, the Marines were in the field and I went back out to the field <laughs> and, you know, I always say, well, what was, what was I going to do? I mean, you're just kind of laying there. And so what could I do? And so, uh, you know, I had all those guys out there and uh, so I, I, you know, I'll never leave that one down. That was another one of those bad decisions, but it was, it was hard, but I was blessed because Michelle was just like the ultimate Marine Corps spouse. And it breaks my heart when you, when you talk to Marines and you see them struggling with kids that are in trouble or, uh, marital issues or financial issues or whatever and it, especially when you're deployed because it's just it, it, it is just worse it is so worse when you're not there to help and um you know the refrigerator dies or something and you're like there's nothing i can do about this she's on her own but michelle would just handle it you know and and, and she was even smart enough to withhold some information from me that wasn't important knowing that I would be so frustrated that I couldn't help. And then later on, I'd get back home and think, oh, that's a nice refrigerator. You know, she's like, yeah, I, I, you know, I bought it and <laughs> had it delivered or whatever. And um, yeah, so it's hard. It's really, really hard to be a good Marine and a good parent, husband, wife uh, or whatever. But um, yeah, we, we all make it happen. And um, you, your final position is you were in charge of ROTC at UCLA and USC. Um, so you were working with a lot of um, students. And what kind of advice, you know, after all the years of experience you've had, and, and I know you retired recently, um, what advice would you give um, your, new, your new recruits? And what advice would you give your son? Because your son's going to be a, he's in the military and, what kind of, you know, in terms of leadership advice would you give him? Yeah, my son's a corporal in the Marine Corps. He's an infantry Marine. I'm very proud of him. And my daughter just got accepted to a master's program out in UNCW. So I'm really, we're, our kid, our, Michelle and I are very fortunate, man. No, no failure to launch and both kids are doing great. Uh, I loved my last job and I was, I was on my way probably to the Pentagon again or to another high headquarters. And those are just tough jobs. And I just got this opportunity to apply for the job at USC and UCLA. And so I did. And much to my surprise, I was selected. So, so I'm in charge of all these young, just great young Americans, you know, first of all, just to get into USC or UCLA, it's very difficult. And then to get selected into the NR Navy ROTC is very difficult. So right away, I mean, I, I just got really good young Americans that I'm working with. So what a, a great opportunity it was to kind of give back, you know, and that's, that's the way I approached it. The Marine Corps has been very good to me and to my family. And this is my chance to kind of take some of my old fashioned leadership stuff and, and, and try to pound it into their heads and, and make a little bit of a difference. And so we talked about leadership all the time, every day, every day, 
And uh, I taught a class, you know, leadership and ethics. And uh, so some of the advice I would give them is you, you, you got to, I mean, and, and it just goes on and on and on, you know, you have to have a, a, an honor, a personal honor system, you know, and, and we had an honor code in NROTC, the midshipmen don't lie, cheat or steal. And then I also throw in there, they don't break the law. And I threw that one in there per, purposely because they don't drink if they're not 21, right? You can't do that. So that, that was why I put that in there. But you just don't do that. You don't lie, cheat, or steal. It's kind of simple stuff. You know, you, you learned it from your parents. But because your resume starts getting developed on day one, right? That's when you start developing your reputation and people are watching you. And when you're a leader, you're being watched constantly. And so if you go to the store and you're unshaven and you look like a bag of trash, the Marines are going to see you. And then you just said, it's okay to have poor personal appearance, right? Because you allowed that. I said, so you, you have to constantly be your best self. You have to constantly understand that you are under scrutiny. And so you have to constantly set that example. You got to maintain physical fitness, right? You got to, the Marines are going to expect you and the sailors and expect you to be able to, to, to compete with them in the physical fitness events. So you got to stay fit. Plus it, it's good for your mental health too. You got to be at, an expert in your craft, you know, whatever your job is, you know, whether you're driving a ship or whether you're leading Marines as an infantry officer, you need to study and become very, very good at your job so that you can be that technical expertise, a tech, technical expert. And then you have to continually develop your leadership skills. And you do, you do that by reading, listening to podcasts, and then by putting yourself in leadership positions. If there's two or three people in a room and they need somebody to take charge of that working group or, 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 or that project, volunteer to do that. Put yourself in positions that, that are uh, outside of your comfort zone where you're in charge, and that's how you get to be a better leader. And, geez, I could just go on and on and on on this stuff. <laughs> and, what, and what about how has the transition been for you going from military life to civilian life and then what you're doing now? Yeah, so it was funny because um, my – change of command the day I gave up my job was July 6th and so I was uh, no longer in charge of the, of the unit and I'll tell you I was I couldn't figure it out but I was just down you know I was just kind of depressed and I'd we were getting ready to move we're getting ready to, to retire and to do all that stuff so I had stuff to do it was active time of course COVID you know in Los Angeles sucked a lot of the fun out of it but uh then I was on the phone with a friend of mine from back in, in Butte, Montana, you know, and he just, it's kind of funny. He's just a guy that stayed in Butte his whole life, you know, and, and he's always been a good friend of mine and we're talking. And I said, you know, Scott, I said, I can't figure it out, but I'm just like, I think I'm depressed. And he said, you've lost your purpose. And he goes, you got no purpose anymore. And I was just like, damn, you're absolutely right, man. I had something every morning to get up and, and, and take charge, you know, and I was the man and now I'm just, I got nothing. And, um, so I talked to Michelle about it and she squared me away and said, yeah, you do have a purpose and your purpose is to do this, 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 and this, so get busy. And so, so, so that helped. But uh, so it was, it was a difficult transition, but I, uh, I had a running start because working at USC and UCLA, I kind of had a foot in each canoe, right? I was a Marine, but I was also doing a lot of civilian stuff and dealing with a lot of civilians. And through our, our, our cohort there with the EML, that helped me. That helped me grow as a leader and also get the confidence that I could work on the civilian side. And so, but what I fa what I really failed to do is after I retired, I should I, I was supposed to relax. And that was our agreement. I mean, for years, Michelle and I talked about that. We're going to take some time off and just relax and travel the country. But I couldn't, you know, because I couldn't accept the fact that I wasn't wor working. You know, <laughs> and, and I should have better prepared myself for that. You know, I've had a job since eighth grade, man. I, I, I just, I, I can't understand how people today aren't filling all these help wanted positions. But um, so anyway, I, even while we traveled around the country and did a, and had a great time, we visited uh, friends, reconnected with family that we hadn't seen in years, saw a few of the national parks, but I, the whole time I was applying for jobs, uploading resumes, writing cover letters, networking. And you know, I mean, I, I, I did one job interview standing on the front porch of president Lincoln's birthplace national park. You know, it's it just, it was crazy. And so uh, I, I do regret that. I wish I would have just taken a few weeks and completely chilled out, but I don't know that I have that ability. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. You're always, you're such a go-getter. 
And so the, the other thing I wanted to ask you was, I have a few questions for you and these are going to be pretty quick. Um, who are your role models now? You can give me a couple of people that you like, that you in your lifetime, you would have uh, loved to meet. You just didn't have the opportunity to. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to fall back again on Bart Starr for one, just because he was, he was such a, a moral leader and he was kind of like me. It seems like he didn't have a lot of, he wasn't really gifted athletically. He just like a regular dude, but he just made stuff happen. You know, he won two Super Bowls and some other things just by surrounding himself with great people. And, you know, and I have some, uh, like Colin Powell pops into my mind simply because he just passed away. And I shouldn't say simply because that, but I always just thought he, again, another guy that, you know, came up from a very hard upbringing and uh, to, rose to the very, very highest levels and, and just a really, um, humble guy and a very moral guy and, and he, he just seemed like he, he did the right thing and really cared about his soldiers and um, so I, I, a huge fan of his and I wish I would have had an opportunity to meet him I've read all his stuff and you've probably seen his 13 leadership uh, uh, traits that are all over the internet right now so I always thought he was pretty cool and then of course you have guys like uh, uh, General Mattis who I, I have met on several occasions and um, General Dunford and, and guys like that, that I really looked up to as great leaders. And then I've got just some tremendous enlisted senior enlisted guys, you know, Howard Kramer, he's a Sergeant senior enlisted right now at um, us strategic command. He was one of my first sergeants major as a Colonel and, and uh, really one of those guys that I could just count on to, to keep me straight and let me know when I'm doing stupid things and uh, not afraid to tell me. And we're, we're friends to this day. So yeah, I've got a bunch of guys like that. And I guess and, and I should I, come up with some civilian guys that's I always seem to be kind of going towards the military, but I guess that's kind of how that's right. It's how no I am. problem. No, it's it's no problem. And um yeah, and I know that you've uh you have a new job um working for a big government agency. So I think you turned out pretty fine in that way. And yeah, it sounds like uh you didn't have much of a retirement. It's been like a two month retirement for you. But um but uh you know, I wanted to ask you uh um what have you done on your bucket bucket list and what do you still need to do on your bucket list? <laughs> you know, what's number one on my bucket list. This is almost embarrassing. I have not yet seen the grand Canyon. <laughs> and I lived in Montana my whole life, you know, it's just up the road. And uh, the only time I've seen it is from the air. So we are getting to the grand Canyon and, uh, and we're going to get down to uh, key West, you know, now we, we're absolutely within striking distance of key West. So, so, so those are two things I want to do. One thing, you know, I really, uh, and I, I got to kind of lean on Michelle about this. Do you ever see that that hike that goes, I think, from France into Spain? It's like this Santiago something or another. It's like a pilgrimage. It's about 500 mile walk. I really want to do that. And uh, it's, you know, it's I, even if I have to do it alone, you know, I, I'd really like to drag Michelle along, but um, she keeps coming up with excuses for us. But uh, I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to get out there and I'm just going to get out and I'm going to go, I'm going to walk until I get to St. John's, uh, I guess it's cathedral there. So that's probably, I will do that. And, uh, the last things are, what are your future goals? Like, what do you want to do? Like, what do you see yourself, you know, 10 years from now? And, you know, what do you, what are your other life goals that you have? And yeah, so this, this job I got now, I didn't expect it at all. You know, I, I'm really, what really makes me tick is developing young leaders. And I, I got this opportunity to work uh, for a small company that's supporting the space program. So I couldn't turn that down. Cause I'm a, you know, like, it, you know, it, any guy my age grew up with Apollo and all that stuff. So this will give me an opportunity to learn a lot about business and, and to be involved in something that's pretty fascinating, but I, I want to stay engaged in leadership. Michelle kind of leans on me a little bit to, to try to maybe capture some of the stuff I have in a book. So I may start dabbling in that, but I want to uh, continue coaching, mentoring people. And so I kind of see going down the road, maybe I'll just start getting into consulting more and just help, help people out. So I, I had a, I had a, um, a chaplain once tell me that the first half of your life is when you make your fortune. And then the second half is when you make a difference. And I screwed up the first half because I have not made that fortune yet. So I'm trying to catch up a little bit for Michelle, but I, I want, I just want to make a difference. And so I want to, you know, when I'm, uh, you know, 90, whatever years old, if I make it that long and, and look back, I want to be able to say, you know, world's a little bit better place. There's some good young people out there because I helped them out, gave them the opportunity. 
Well, thank you, Sean, so much because you've done just that. And just keep, you know, keep going after your goals and keep making a difference in the world. You certainly impacted a lot of people in this world. And I know you have for me too. So uh, thank you so, so much for being here today. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Fig. Like I said, this is this is hard for me, but I'm I'm happy to support your your podcast, and I'm really excited to uh, kind of see where this takes you. No, it's it's uh, you know it, this for me. This has always been something that I really really um, I want to do because there's so many wonderful people I've met in my life, and um, and I would love to meet and and see how they've become so successful like you and making a difference in the world. And thank you so much for your time today. I really really appreciate it. And happy birthday again. Yeah, thank you. And uh, congratulations on your award the other night. You were looking sharp. And this is my, my go-to podcast. So I, I will be listening to this every time uh, you, you uh, upload a, a new uh, episode. So this is good stuff. Thank you so much, my friend. Take care. All right, Vic. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Bye-bye.